Hello and welcome to a special episode of Sounds Strategic. I'm Antonio Sampaio and this week May and I discuss some of the key trends in modern armed conflict identified in the IISS Armed Conflict Survey, which will be released on the 27th of May. Each year, the Armed Conflict Survey book, published by the ISS, assesses the state of armed conflict around the world, providing in-depth analysis on, on the conflict's political, military and humanitarian dynamics. So, to help us find out more about the current trends, we each spoke with some of the contributors to this year's edition of the survey. So, Maya, who did you speak to this week? Hi, Antonio. I spoke with Virginia Comely, who leads the Conflict Security and Development Program here at the IISS, as well as Eleanor Beaver, who is the Research Associate for Conflict Security and Development. And we spoke about some of the main features in this year's Armed Conflict Survey, as well as the challenges that are being created as armed conflicts become more intractable and internationalized. We also discussed how non-state armed groups have used technology in conflict, such as the Islamic State's use of UAVs during the siege of Mosul in Iraq. What was the one thing that stood out for you in this conversation? Well, what I found most interesting about our conversation was really digging into the misconceptions around the use of armed drones by non-state actors. Because although proliferation of drone technology is a concern, evidence has shown that we haven't seen the peak of this trend yet. And there are a whole host of technical and other challenges that non-state actors face when trying to use drone technology. But what about you, Antonio? Who did you speak to? So I spoke with Tuesday Reitano, who is the deputy director of an organization called Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime on the challenges posed by human trafficking conflict. So Tuesday wrote a piece for the armed conflict survey this year on human trafficking and why non-state armed groups become involved in, the, in this activity and why it is so difficult to counter it. That is such an important issue to cover in the armed conflict survey this year. What was the one point that surprised or shocked you the most from speaking with Tuesday? So I was surprised and a little shocked to uh, hear the variety of reasons why arm, uh, armed groups uh, conduct this activity of human trafficking, um, including kidnapping or coercing girls and women um, to become um, to take them into human trafficking and then turning them into wives, uh, marrying them to fighters, and also to force them into uh, conducting some support activities for armed groups, such as cooking and feeding them. There is also um, the symbolic targeting of some social groups or some populations by these fighters as a form of punishment or, or, or revenge. So it's a very grim topic, but a very important one. And hopefully the conversation will help in um, our audience to understand it better. Absolutely. Well, to our listeners, we hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Today I'm joined by Virginia Comedy, Senior Fellow for Conflict Security and Development, and Eleanor Beaver, Research Associate for Conflict Security and Development, to talk about this year's edition of the IISS Armed Conflict Survey, which will be launched on the 27th of May. Virginia is a co-editor of the Armed Conflict Survey, and Eleanor has contributed significantly to a number of chapters in this year's ACS. Virginia and Ella, welcome. Hi, thank you for having us. Hello, thank you. Virginia, you're going to launch the sixth edition of the ACS as I said, on the 27th of May. What are some of the key highlights of this year's edition and who is it aimed at? 
Yes, uh, thank you, Maya. Yes, we're very excited that the next edition will be released uh, very soon on the 27th, as you said, and every year uh, we produce an annual review of the political, military and humanitarian dimensions of all the after conflicts um, around the world. And um, every year we assess the different situations of, of violence uh, that are ongoing uh, across the Americas, Asia-Pacific, uh, Europe, Middle East, South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. And we see which of those situations meets our criteria, our definition of armed conflict. 33 of those situations met the criteria and we included them. And for each of them, we produce overviews of the conflict parties that are involved uh, in, in the tensions in, in the conflict. And we highlight key trends, strategic implications and prospect for, um, for conflict resolution. Uh, we, we really want the, the book to be the uh, reference uh, publication for anyone who has an interest uh, in the study of conflict. And we are thinking of uh, practitioners, people who work in, uh, in policymakers, people from um, humanitarian organizations and NGOs who are, that are active on the ground. But we are also thinking of the media and the uh, academic and broader uh, research communities. We want the book really to be as user-friendly as possible possible. So every year we expand our range of uh, visual tools that we employ to convey sometimes very complex um, issues such as the uh, relationships uh, among different uh, conflict parties, for instance. So in the 2020 edition of the Armed Conflict Survey, for instance, we have over 60 maps uh, graphics, uh, infographics that really help the reader understand some of these, uh, some of these issues. Uh, we, uh, as I said, in this attempt to make the book as um, user-friendly as possible, we have introduced a new feature this year, actually two new features. One is of some very handy um, timelines of the major uh, political and military developments within uh, a given conflict. So that's a very uh, easy uh, reference for, for people to, to, to look at. But we've also included for every, uh, for every region uh, key trends, strategic implications uh, and, and, f and future prospects. And, and we are doing this mindful of the fact that this particularly uh, concerns the strategic implications, that uh, conflicts are becoming more and more internationalized as uh, time go go goes by. What I mean by that is that even in cases of conflicts that, that might look at first sight as rather localized, we see the growing involvement of international actors from uh, further afield. And we really want to reflect that. We want to explain to our readers uh, how conflict in a given country or sub-region is going to impact the um, uh, foreign or diplomatic relations among uh, other actors. So, for instance, uh, in, in the context of the Middle East, we highlight how Turkey's intervention in Syria isolated the country from its regional interlocutors and NATO uh, allies. Or when we look at the South Asia context and specifically at the conflict in Northeast India, we uh, emphasize that uh, counterinsurgency coordination between India and Myanmar was indeed a very significant military and diplomatic uh, development uh, that we recorded in the course of um, in the course of, of 2019.
And I think another example that you discuss in the book is how diminishing Western engagement with the Burmese government might actually create room for China to expand its political influence in Myanmar. So I absolutely agree that one of the book's real values is how it's able to explain that geopolitical and strategic relations um, actually do intersect with some of these more local conflicts that we might otherwise not um pay attention to from a bigger picture. So it's you know really important to understand the uh, total uh, context in which these conflicts uh, occur. So if you take a bird's eye view of conflict around the world um, after uh, at looking at your book, what stands out the most? Yeah, well, one, one thing I've already, uh, well, gave it away, this uh, increasingly internationalized uh, nature of conflicts, even the most uh, localized ones. But the two other um, uh, trends that really stand out are the role of non-state actors and the uh, increasingly prolonged nature of, um, of conflict. Uh, so each year we uh, accompanied the um, conflict-specific analysis with uh, thematic, thematic essays that uh, have the purpose of highlighting the most uh, um, pertinent um, uh, trends that are emerging or are evolving. And of course we acknowledge that um, the trends evolve and linger for longer than our 12-month time frame, of course, but we believe that the themes that we have uh, chosen this year uh, are going to be with us for some time. And, and it is indeed through those themes that we highlight the role of non-state uh, armed groups, how they um, evolve. We have an essay that, for instance, discusses explicitly how the proliferation of horizontally uh, structured uh, groups is something that has been increasing and is likely to increase and have some uh, specific repercussions uh, uh, for instance, in terms of uh, making peace negotiations even more uh, complicated. Uh, we also highlight how uh, non-state uh, actors uh, adapt and, and to new environments and to new technological developments. And that's uh, something that um, Eleanor Beaver uh, will um, can, well, can go into detail of, but really, for instance, how uh, armed groups are using uh, drones. But also we see how groups such as uh, ISIS have adapted in the face of uh, uh, adversity and how they are uh, using the, uh, the networks that they, use, they used to uh, exploit to ensure a constant supply of fighters uh, going to, to Syria and Iraq to actually facilitate the movements of those fighters to other conflict zones. And of course, this has an impact on uh, receiving uh, countries of those, of those fighters. And we see the uh, proliferation of ISIS uh, provinces in places such as uh, Africa and Southeast Asia. But we also look at how um, some of these groups exploit uh, conflict for uh, purely financial gains. And we do have an essay that looks at how uh, conflict presents an ideal opportunity for, uh, for criminals to engage 
uh, in, uh, um, in human trafficking. And I, I should also specify that this pertains criminals, but there are also some ideologically dri driven groups that engage in, uh, in human trafficking. So we, we, we really have a big focus on non-state actors and we, um, because of their uh, key uh, role, I would say they are the protagonists or the vast majority of the, uh, of the conflict currently, uh, currently ongoing. And we do so also um, in the uh, in an expanded way within our conflict analysis chapters with, with graphics and tables and, and, and profiles more than we've ever done uh, we've ever done before. And the other really uh, uh, theme that stands out is the one of. Um, conflict duration. Of course, the, uh, the realization that conflicts are lasting for longer and longer uh, is not an exactly a new one. It's something that has been discussed quite frequently in policy circles uh, over the past uh, five years uh, or so. But I think by really dawn on us, as we were putting together the chart of armed conflict, which accompanies uh, the book and provides different graphics of um, that, that explains various aspects of, of conflict, that uh, 12 of the after conflicts uh, started in uh, 2009 and 2000, between 2009 and 2019, while more than 60% of all the conflicts that we are including in, in the book have actually been ongoing for 10 years or longer. And, uh, and, and this is really raises a number of questions uh, in terms of how likely it is for those conflicts to actually uh, reach uh, an end. And sadly, one of the um, uh, one of the uh, key examples of, of this trend, so this conflict that lasts for a very long time, when you know conflict resolution seems to be uh, very um, hard to reach, is, is Afghanistan, and uh, we'll actually be uh, publishing on our uh, website very, very shortly a piece of analysis that really looks at how the developments of uh, 2019 that we highlight uh, in the book and that led to the historical deal with the Taliban between the United States and the Taliban in February actually did not result in, in peace, quite, uh, quite, quite the opposite. We've seen some large attacks and many instances of, um, of violence. So uh, peace rema remains a very, uh, very fragile goal. On the issue of non-state armed groups, then, I was wondering whether we could dig a little deeper. I know that one of the um, themes that you explore in the book is around the use of new technologies by non-state armed groups. Eleanor, could you give us a little bit more depth on this? Yes, sure. So uh, our essay was uh, that I wrote with my colleague, Dia Mohsen, uh, was looking specifically at how non-state groups are using UAVs or drones, more commonly used, um, more commonly used word. Um, the reason we decided to look at this was partly, I think, the um, the very the very widespread attention that this issue has received, particularly in the media. There's been a narrative going along for a few years now that suggests that this is going to become a very pervasive and very serious threat and that drones are going to really multiply the capacity of non-state groups and terrorist groups to commit attacks. And uh, we wanted to sort of examine how serious this really was. 
And what I, I don't, our essay does not intend to play down this concern, but I think that it does offer a lot of nuance into these questions. So, for example, what I think one of the biggest drivers of that concern was the idea that now anyone can buy a commercial UAV off of Amazon or eBay and adapt it, weaponize it, uh, attach munitions to it, and then, you know, pilot it into a building, into a civilian area, and so on. Um, and what we found is that, that's, that, that, that that has to be taken with something of a pinch of salt. There is a huge difference still between what you can do with a military purpose UAV and what you can do with a commercial UAV. Uh, now we know, obviously from 2019 and the attacks on the Abkai uh, oil facility, that uh, when they are deployed properly, UAVs are uh, can have devastating results. However, your average UAV that you can buy on Amazon is not going to be able to carry a payload, uh, a very large explosive payload. To take another quite well-known example, uh, we know that ISIS used, uh, uh, made pretty extensive use of UAVs uh, over battlefields such as Mosul. Um, but the, those UAVs were carrying quite small clumps of munitions. Uh, so one of the experts that we spoke to when we researched this piece had been on the ground with the Iraqi army uh, uh, look, looking, at, uh, looking at ISIS weapon systems. And he said that those UAVs slowed rather than stopped the progress of the Iraqi army. So it was it was an annoyance and something that scared them rather than an operational game changer, if you like. Uh, so there is still a tremendous difference in what uh, non-state groups with, for example, state backers can achieve. Uh, so to take another example, um, uh, Ukrainian separatists do seem to have benefited uh, from Russian support uh, and have been able to deploy much larger UAVs for I uh, much more sophisticated UAVs uh, for ISR purposes, chiefly over eastern Ukraine. Whereas while at the same time they have been uh, using commercial UAVs, they haven't used those so much in a weaponized capacity. That said, there's an important thing to bear in mind here, which is that we, what we are seeing is non-state groups really investing they're really investing in building up their own expertise of how to use UAVs, how to pilot them, but also how to adapt them and weaponize them. Uh, so just to take the Ukraine example again, uh, we there has been quite a big evolution in the last two years over the payload release systems. So originally they were sending up sending up commercial UAV with a uh, with a hand grenade attached to it and they would just have a string around the firing pin and would shake the UAV until uh, until the grenade was released. Uh, and now we've uh, more recently they've discovered a photocell release system. So it's clear that they are investing in their own capability to engineer these and to improve them and to adapt them uh, and some groups have, uh, gone quite far with this. In November, we saw an advert. Uh, we saw uh, Hayat Al Sham release uh, release an advert specifically calling for UAV experts to come and join them. Uh, so that's what we highlight in this essay is the importance of knowledge development and knowledge transfer being just as important as technological developments. 
there is a great deal of potential, especially as technology develops, uh, for non-state groups to use these UAVs more dangerously uh, and how they learn from their mistakes, how they learn from uh, watching other groups use them is going to be extremely important. I mean, these seem like incredibly complex issues to try and cover um, from abroad and on the ground as well. Virginia, um, considering that the ACS covers such a breadth of conflicts and regions, what are the main challenges you face in putting this book together in terms of data collection and verification? Yes, you're absolutely right. This is a very big task and we do rely on both in-house and um, external contributors who are uh, based often on the ground to collect data for us and to produce uh, produce the analysis. Um, it, we, we do really emphasize uh, involving people within that uh, regional expertise and people we have uh, known and trusted for uh, for years who have those um, also contacts on the ground who are able to help us verify some of the information because um, some of the information is very uh, hard to uh, to come by and uh, is often quite uh, quite nebulous uh, for instance compiling uh, profiles of um, armed groups, especially when it comes to uh, estimating their their size, that can be quite uh, quite tricky. So we uh, we triangulate the information and we tend to take a rather a conservative approach. We are not interested in making uh, sensationalist um, headlines, um, of course. Uh, but the work also is challenging because it requires uh, constant uh, constant monitoring. And we, uh, we we need people with that in-depth uh, experience who are able to to to, to pick up on new trends uh, emerging. People who have followed the conflicts for for long enough to to, to see when uh, an attack is simply yet another attack, or or it represents the introduction of um, a new set of tactics, or sometimes a U-turn in the behavior of a uh, of a given uh, of a given actor. Uh, the other thing is that um, our uh, analysts, uh, in addition to uh, focusing on the uh, conflicts that we include in the book, and actually on that is important to highlight that every year we constantly review whether the, the conflicts that are currently ongoing still meet the, the requirements for or the criteria for inclusion in the new book. Uh, but uh, we, we also ask our analysts to monitor developments uh, in, in their broader region so that we can uh, decide when to include uh, a new conflict. So we already have some uh, candidates that we think uh, if the situation continues to, to remain the same and it then it deteriorates, we will have to include in the 2021 20, uh, uh, edition of the book. That's fascinating. Um, just to end on on a note, again, on another trend of um, the proliferation of non-state armed groups, one of my favorite lines in the book this year in one of the essays is that newer armed groups these days act more like disruptive startups than standard corporations. And I thought that was so spot on. Um, Nella, could you please talk a little bit about the proliferation of information communications technology and the role that has in perhaps facilitating um, the proliferation in turn of new armed groups? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, no, I agree with you. That was uh, that was a terrific line, and that essay itself is uh, is very interesting. It's talking about how uh, quite often we miss the advantages that come from being a smaller, uh, lower profile armed group. They do have they ha they have a fairly unique capacity. Uh, when they choose to band together to um, really throw conventional battlefields in directions that we haven't expected before, that we haven't seen before. Uh, so, for example, mid-level commanders um, have a great deal have a great deal more power in smaller groups. They tend to have much closer. Uh, they tend to have much closer trust with uh, with rank and file fighters. They're a lot more adaptable. They're a lot more cognizant of their very localized terrains. And so if you have those small disparate units of fighters that can then sort of band together very quickly, um, they can they can have some very uh, some very transformative uh, consequences in conflict zones. And uh, to come back to the question of uh, information technology, you're absolutely right. It's been um, this this is hardly this is hardly a brand new question we've been examining for instance you know um non-state group and terrorist group propaganda online for a few years now um though it is interesting seeing how it is continuing to allow non-state groups to project themselves onto different situations uh so for example uh to consider isis in 2019 2020 uh, as we know, obviously, uh, it, now that its territory has gone, it was, I think, um, it went, went through a period of struggling to market itself to the, ne the next generation of potential sympathisers. And uh, what we've seen it do instead is uh, rebrand re its strategy as a global battle of attrition where it's going to, um, where, it, where it's going to, attack the uh, attack enemy nations with its sympathizers and wear them down through constant attacks uh, one of the regions uh, uh, one, one of the regions that I look at the most is eastern and central Africa which is the location of the newest uh, newest Isis Wilayo province uh, and that is uh, uh, Isis Central Africa province we saw the first attacks uh, claimed in ISIS media from uh, Democratic Republic of Congo in April 2019. That was interesting because it's uh, the group that uh, the group that it's believed to be claiming credit for is a group called the Allied Democratic Forces, which has been very active in DRC for a long time and was long known to have Islamist sympathies, but has also been in its own in its own uh, activities, very private and very 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 reluctant so far to pro it produced very limited propaganda materials up until ISIS started broadcasting on its behalf, and then a few months later uh, we saw it claim its first attack in a much newer insurgency in northern Mozambique, uh, and that northern Mozambican insurgency has grown extremely quickly over the last two years though it predated the existence of ISIS Central Africa province. So what's interesting is seeing how ISIS as a very now nebulous, very uh, much more decentralised organisation is kind of inserting itself into conflicts that were long running, that were, were, that were certainly um, 
in, in generation before it got there um, and has still managed to, um, yeah, to, to project its influence, to project its project an image of influence onto them. Uh, what we always have to bear in mind here is that there's usually quite a stark difference between what the what propaganda media says and the realities on the ground. Um, and that's certainly the case in both of those conflict zones, which uh, most analysts agree are far more influenced by local concerns, by inequality, historical grievances um, than they are by uh, than they are by transnational jihadist sympathies, even if those have kind of galvanized things and branded them and gotten them a lot more attention than they otherwise would have received. The motivations on the ground are far more complex and we are always in extremely risky territory when we look at a very complex conflict through a counterterrorism lens. Well, luckily, we have the Armed Conflict Survey 2020 to inform us on these um, more nuanced and detailed and fact-based uh, analyses. We haven't even touched the surface, scratched the surface of um, what the book covers this year, I'm sure. But I wanted to thank you, Virginia and Nella, for um, joining me today for our quick 20 minutes, if not just slightly over discussion. Um, and to our listeners, Pick up your copy of the ACS 2020. It's a fantastic resource. What we like to do in this podcast is to shine a light on the wonderfully talented team of researchers that we are lucky enough to count as colleagues here at the IISS. If you'd like to learn more about the research, visit the IISS website today. You'll find lots of free reports, blogs, and commentary, as well as recordings of events that we host around the world. There's a wealth of material for you to explore at www.iiss.org. I am very pleased to be joined by Tuesday Reitano, who is the Deputy Director of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. The Global Initiative is headquartered in Geneva and works alongside 500 experts worldwide on research and innovative approaches to tackle organized crime. She has worked in the past on issues such as counterterrorism, state fragility, and rule of law for the European Union and the United Nations. Tuesday is also the author of an essay in this year's Armed Conflict Survey on human trafficking and its linkage to armed conflict. So, Tuesday, I think one of the most shocking and well-known cases of human trafficking during conflict was Boko Haram's abduction of 276 Chibok uh, schoolgirls in Nigeria in 2014. Of course, this is by no means the only case. How does human trafficking serve the purpose of conflict actors such as Boko Haram and other armed groups? Thanks for the question, Antonio, and it's a, definitely a pertinent one. One of the complexities, I think, in picking out an answer is the challenge of saying what counts as trafficking. There are so many different types of crime that are wrapped into the definition of human trafficking, that it means that there are a lot of answers to the question. So because human trafficking includes everything like forced labor, for uh, sexual trafficking and sexual exploitation, um, forced marriage, which was the case with the Chibok girls, for example, the, uh, the assumption was Boko Haram had seized them to use them as sex slaves, forced them into marriage with combatants, and also generally as labor within their camps to, to cook and to clean that the uses are very much multivariate. One of the 
definitional questions also into this is that there are conflict specific forms of trafficking. So human trafficking that re relates directly to the form of trafficking that's underway. The use of child soldiers for recruitment, for example, is considered a form of trafficking. But there are also many types of trafficking that would predate and pre-exist a conflict, forced labor, as I said, being one of them. I mean, fundamentally for an armed group where one of their primary concerns consistently will be to maintain their troops, ensure that they're fed, ensure that they're happy, ensure that they're loyal. You can see how the capture of a teenage girl could answer to many of those kinds of needs. It was the same story with the Yazidi girls who were captured in Iraq in 2014. They were used, given to, given to the soldiers to use sexually, to do what essentially what they liked with, whilst at the same time being given responsibility to maintain the camp. I think the final thing to really draw out in this answer this question is there can actually be a strategic and symbolic and a political value to using human trafficking as an instrument as, of conflict. So there were a lot of as, uh, aspersions suggested in the case both of Nigeria and in the case of the Islamic State who took the Yazidi girls, that first of all, this was a clear strike in their ideology. Um, in the case of Boko Haram, they targeted schoolgirls, and they had been targeting schools since about 2010, because it was their sense that under Sharia law, under um, their ideology, women shouldn't be educated. So by physically taking these girls who were on the point of sitting their maturity exam out of school, they were consistent with the ideology that they were putting forward. They're also building up a point of political leverage. So holding a group of vulnerable persons, people with whom the international community, political leaders would have sympathy, gives them a bargaining chip into any kind of political negotiations or territorial negotiations that they might be trying to put forward. One area of study that I think both of us are very interested in is that of the nexus between armed conflict and organized crime. So you've just mentioned uh, some of the political and symbolic um, roles that human trafficking sometimes um, fulfills. But is human trafficking usually perpetrated primarily by conflict actors, those with these political aims, um, or um, and sometimes is it also through linkages to more purely criminal networks such as smugglers and transnational trafficking rings? Again, I'm sorry to almost start at the same place I started the last question, but because human trafficking is such a multifaceted crime, the answer again is actually it's perpetrated by a lot of people. Human trafficking is fundamentally a crime of exploitation. It's a person being held against their will, um, and exploited for material or in sometimes non-material profit. And human trafficking could be done by family members, it can be done by community members, it can be done by you know, a husband to his wife, but also by transnational criminal groups, by armed militias, by quite professional looking companies who use slave labor in their factories. So again, when we talk in this dynamic, it comes back to the distinction of what kinds of human trafficking were almost pre-existing or ongoing and un unrelated to the conflict, but perhaps were allowing the accrual of profit to conflict actors, and what types were strate strategically being used by the people in the armed conflict themselves. So on a case-by-case -case basis, you could tease out, I think, some of the differences. You know, is this a case of criminal networks? Is this a case of armed conflict groups? In other cases, maybe the definition between the two is far more blurred, that you could have 
conf clear conflict parties, armed groups, who are largely resourced by the illicit economy, so they also have the characteristics of an organized crime group. For an example, the FARC was a politically motivated um, armed group in Colombia, but it was resourced primarily by the drug trade. In Libya, which is an area where my organization works a lot, we see armed groups related to the ongoing conflict, but they are resourced primarily by human smuggling and trafficking. So uh, there are so many definitional questions that blur the lines that it becomes hard to develop a re response framework around this. So while we recognize the problem, we recognize the nexus, we get sort of turned around to the, well, what do we do about it? And the then the broad definition really doesn't help us. Yeah. Are there certain types of armed conflict or certain regions in which human trafficking is um, more of an acute problem? Uh, we've mentioned in this podcast already two uh, instances, both coincidentally or not, from 2014. So the Chibok schoolgirls in Nigeria and also the uh, um, Yazidis by the Islamic State uh, in Iraq. So um, are, th are there... Uh, particular characteristics of cer certain conflicts that perhaps encourage certain actors to pursue human trafficking more more frequently? I think so, yes. the I, I think it's worth perhaps typologizing a certain set of preconditions. I would say overall, where there is a very poor economy, where there are few other sources of value to be found, then the exploitation of humans becomes an obvious form of revenue and an obvious form of labor and a cheap one and an available one and one that's very easily captured by somebody who can wield a gun. So fundamentally, the exploitation comes because they threaten violence. Other conditions where there's a clear power imbalance. I mean, one of the sad cases that have grown up in the debate around human trafficking and conflict has been the exploitation by international peacekeepers of local community members. Why? Because they're in a position of power. They're trading access to the humanitarian assistance or the protection that they're distributing in exchange for sexual favors or labor. Um, I think other things that be begin to matter are large-scale displacement. And so while the crimes of human smuggling and human trafficking are completely distinct, we know that people who are on the move irregularly, large populations of refugees who perhaps don't have access to formal employment become very vulnerable to human trafficking. Perhaps they're not being recorded properly, they're not receiving the protection from the international community that they should be, and so they become more vulnerable to exploitation. And in terms of responses, um, in the case of human trafficking, it, it, um, in situations of armed conflict, it tends to affect um, citizens of very fragile and war-ravaged countries. So the governments of those countries are, I, I would think, very um, weak in term, if, if it even tries to, to tackle these powerful uh, networks. So who are the actors responding or trying to stop this activity? Um, are we speaking about international organizations such as the United Nations, peacekeeping forces, aid donors? So who are the main, uh, who is leading this effort, if anybody? So there's a legal framework that overlays the response to human trafficking in any situation. And that is the UN Transnational Organized Crime Convention, which has a protocol specific to human trafficking. 
And in that, it lays out a series of responsibilities to respond to the victim, identified victims of trafficking. And the legally appointed respondent is the national government. And so really, that's where the obligation sits. So all of the other actors in a party, whether that's a humanitarian community and so on and so forth, do not have that legal obligation. The challenge, of course, in a conflict situation or any situation of high violence or fragility is you're putting the burden of response and the burden of care on state institutions which don't have that capacity. They, I mean, they, they may not have, frankly, even legitimate capacity for governance or control over territory, never mind the ability to meet the specialized needs of identified victims of trafficking. The second problem in this is actually around this point of identification, and I drew it out in my answer for a reason, because there are a certain set of rights and privileges that are given to an identified victim of trafficking, but many people who are exploited in the courses of conflict, first of all, may not realize that they're in a situation of trafficking, partly because perhaps very poor labor conditions or transactional sexual exploitation is almost cultural or is used so ubiquitously that they don't see it as a form of exploitation and wouldn't know to claim rights that they had. So there you have two problems already in the legal framework that sets it up, which is why this is an issue that's grown up in a conflict setting as an international community issue. And there is more and more burden being placed on the international community to say, well, we can see here, but the duty bearers have no way of taking this forward. This is a major violation of somebody's human rights. The international community should be able to step in. But it's to ask a lot. I mean, we know, first of all, you know, going back to the opening introduction, we talked about the Chibok girls. You quoted the fact that 276 of them were abducted. 220 odd are still missing. Why? Because they're hard to identify. They are often moved out of the immediate point of abduction. It's in areas where reach is very, very difficult. It was the same thing with the cities. You're negotiating through an active conflict zone. So there are protection issues for anyone who's working in that environment. So, you know, again, I mean, is it a credible thing to ask of the international humanitarian, whether it's the peacekeeping community or the humanitarian responders, to tell them, okay, your job is also now to identify victims of trafficking and provide them with a specialized care and their host of legal entitlements that they have as a consequence. Second issue of this, of course, is you are dealing with a conflict and humanitarian emergency. So we already have swathes of vulnerable people, maybe large numbers of people who are forcibly displaced, um, people traumatized or in active conflict situations whose livelihoods have been destroyed, who are dealing with either physical or mental trauma, of uh, just from the conflict itself and we know and that you know there are, it's clearly shown in the statistics released by the UN system that humanitarian needs and conflict funding needs have been going up and up and up and certainly the COVID-19 pandemic has exacerbated even further sets of humanitarian needs for those in conflict and yet the level of humanitarian funding available has stayed more or less the same in absolute terms. So it's meeting a smaller and smaller uh, proportion of the needed humanitarian funding. So in that context, if you're going to add another agenda onto the burden of humanitarian actors who are struggling to meet their first priority concerns, which is simply to ensure security and basic um, 
socioeconomic goods for a unstable population. It seems an almost incredible agenda. I mean, I just don't think it's a fair burden to place on their shoulders. So the question then is, who should respond? And that's where I think this agenda has stalled. We don't have in a conflict setting anyone who could really step in and say, I, I can take forward meeting the needs of victims of trafficking, identifying them, moving them to a safe place, and then meeting their legal entitlements as laid out in the Palermo Protocol. Are there best practices anywhere? Um, is there any particular government, um, since we, we, we seem to be saying that uh, sometimes national governments um, um, take the lead on, on this fight, are there any cases that strike us as, as uh, particularly positive? Or do you think that the Nigerian government has done... Um, has made progress in, in, in pursuing the, the remaining victims of the Chibok girls. Are there any institutions that governments could um, build if they want to um, tackle this issue? I, I don't think we can point to any particularly good examples, frankly. I certainly wouldn't point to the Nigerian government. Uh, they turned down international assistance in identifying and rescuing the Chibok girls in the early phases because they considered it a matter of national security. And that is frankly often the response to transnational organized crime, that there isn't an international mechanism to respond to transnational organized crime because it is considered a domestic security issue despite the fact that it's transnational by definition. So it remains very much within the national security preserve to respond to these kinds of things. And often in an unstable political environment and open conflict, when you already have a lot of international actors and proxy actors kind of waltzing around interfering in the space, um, the question I think whether is whether governments A would prioritize human trafficking as an issue on which they would seek support, second of all whether they would use that support in the way it was intended, third of all whether it would actually meet the needs of victims of trafficking are all enormous questions. Even in stable developed states, you know, we're sitting in Europe, even European countries who take their responsibilities towards meeting the needs of victims of trafficking seriously, they still fall short quite considerably because it's a difficult challenge to address. More than this, I think, however, and it might be a controversial point to raise, but in many cases, states, and into this I include you know, leaders of the Western world, are derogating their rights or their responsibilities towards victims of trafficking. I raised the point earlier about how people on the move are very vulnerable to human trafficking and exploitation and other protection risks we are seeing levels of forced displacement and asylum seeking at scales previously unheard of. I mean, we know that following the 2014 outrage about victims of human trafficking, swift on its heels came 2016 and the beginning of the migration crisis. Similar in Europe, the movement of all of the Central American migrants escaping gang conflicts in the Americas through up and towards the US and, and Canada and the r responsibility that was taken by the states both in transit and of destination in terms of meeting their protection needs was laughable. I mean in actual fact some of the key policy decisions which were intended to stop these large-scale movements of people towards destination countries put migrants f at far greater risk. So I think 
in some ways, the human trafficking and conflict agenda is almost hypocritical when you compare it to the action taken to prevent irregular migration and to actually retract the rights of asylum seekers to seek asylum in a safe and dignified manner. Well, thank you very much, Tuesday. Um, it's a grim topic, but a very important one to, to tackle. So it was my pleasure to have here Tuesday Ritanu uh, from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Well, thank you for listening as always, and we hope you enjoyed this special episode of Sound Strategic. We will be launching the Armed Conflict Survey on Wednesday, the 27th of May with an online event, which you're all very welcome to join. Check out the AAS website or the links in the description for further information on how to register. And be sure to comment, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic for more in-depth discussions on the latest trends in conflict, security, and international affairs on wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook to keep up to date on all the latest research and analysis from the IISS. See you all next time.